It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Five Things. I am your host, Alias Inize Rasul. And before we get into the podcast, I would like to acknowledge that we at the Bad Dog Theater Company are broadcasting from the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. Uh, so in the last few episodes of Five Things, I have been sharing a little clip from an Al Jazeera feature article called Canada's Crying Shame About Residential Schools, um, because I have decided to make the space in my land acknowledgement to, to share um, to share about what's happening now. I think uh, we definitely have to familiarize ourselves more and normalize keeping up to date with History as it's happening and not just, be, not just apologize for it several years later. So I'm going to read that clip again to do, uh, I'm going to read that clip again tonight. So it's a solid read. If you have a chance to read the whole thing, it's uh, Canada's crying shame about residential schools. Um, and just a content warning that what I'm about to read contains upsetting themes around the trauma of residential schools. Um, so let's pay particular attention to the numbers. Um, here we go. So there were 139 residential schools attended by an estimated 150,000 First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children in Canada. The first school opened in 1831 and the last one closed in 1996. The institutions in intended to erode Indigenous culture, language, and family and community ties were notorious for the neglect and abuse of the children who were forced to attend them. Thousands of Indigenous children died at the schools with the Truth and Reconciliation with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the TRC of Canada, conservatively estimating between 4,000 to 6,000 deaths. So conservatively being the word right now, I think the number is upwards of 7,000. Um, in 2009, the Canadian government turned down requests from the TRC for $1.5 million in funding to help identify the locations of burial sites uh, of children at the former residential school. So $1.5 million sounds like a lot of money, but it's the cost of one house in downtown Toronto, you know? Um, so that says a lot. So anyway, continuing with the article, so some First Nations communities begin began using their own resources to hire specialists operating ground-penetrating radar to find the graves. And at the end of May, they uncovered the remains of 215 children buried at the former Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia. And actually, I just read in the news today that the Catholic order uh, uh, who were responsible for um, opening 42 of these residential schools are opening up their records, um, uh, they're opening up their records about, um, yeah, what happened. So anyway, so yeah. So again, like pay attention to history just so we can keep people accountable because, you know, it's easy to bury things <laughs> um, if, if you don't, if people just don't care. So there we go. Thank you so much for listening to that. Um, on to the show. So this season of Five Things is hosted by me, Alia Rasul, and I am going to be talking to some of my favorite people, some of the best and brightest stars in comedy, and we are going to dig into the stories and the gossip <laughs> and personality behind their jokes. Uh, so we have some of my most famous friends, and I have a lot of famous friends, humble brag, um, coming on this season to make so you make sure that you hit like and subscribe. Uh, just so that you don't miss any of them. Um, five Things is based on an improv warm-up game. So Bad Dog is an improv theater, and I learned improv there. <laughs> 
So let's let's get out of our heads and warm up. Uh, Shannon, our wonderful tech and producer, could you kindly give me a suggestion for five things um, so I can warm up? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, five books. Ooh, five books. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, five. The first book that comes to mind is uh, Crosshairs, which is an amazing, amazing book written by uh, Catherine Hernandez. It talks about the the end of the world, um, and it's based in Toronto. And Catherine Hernandez was actually a guest on this podcast like two episodes ago. So make sure you check that out. So Crosshairs, uh, number two. Um, one of my favorite things about myself is that I was named after a character uh, in a sci-fi novel, and that novel is Dune, which is a uh, Timothy Chalamet's on that. And I haven't seen it yet, but yeah, I'm. People often ask me which character I'm named after. <laughs> yeah, it's Alia. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number three, um, the first book that I ever read, like was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It was the first book that I took in a corner and read from like cover to cover and felt like such a grown up. I was like, whoa, it's not like, it's like a proper adult <laughs> novel, this Roald Dahl book. So uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, number four is, um, I don't know why I can't get, get this out of my head, but uh, there's this book called like the 50 laws or whatever the 52 laws of power maybe 40 doesn't matter and uh it's very like machiavellian but uh it's in my brain because that's where i keep 500 us dollars <laughs> so i think about that book a lot i'm like oh no where is that book uh, but like i don't actually particularly love the lessons of it but i just put my money in there and number five i wrote a book okay i wrote a book i wrote a book it's called super important filipina thoughts so uh buy it <laughs> please. Uh, yeah. So that's five things. Thanks so much, Shannon. Um, okay. Now that we're warmed up, I am so, so, so excited to introduce my guest tonight. Um, so this person, we basically talk every day. So we're very, very warmed up <laughs> to have a conversation. Um, it's Our guest tonight is Ophira Kayla Chide, uh, who's a multi-award winning disabled writer, performer, and producer. Her work weaves together music, comedy, and storytelling, centering disability and chronic illness experience. Uh, they co-created the sketch comedy review, Generally Hospital, with me, woo, and, and, and uh, other people, but <laughs> it's us two tonight, so <laughs> let's focus on them. Um, uh, so, which is a Canadian Comedy Award nominated show. It was, it won the patrons pick at the Fringe Festival. It also won the David Sagan Mem Memorial Award. And uh, she also wrote uh, Literally Titanium, which was developed through the Buddies and Bad Times Emerging Creators Unit before pre premiering at the 2020 Next Stage Theater Festival. And also just an amazing all around comedy person who I love medium. <laughs> Just kidding. Love a lot. There you go, Ophira. You have it on record that I uh, <laughs> let's bring up Ophira Kayla. Hello. Hello. I mean, I recorded that. Um while I know. I, and so uh, I'm really just gonna play that clip back quite a lot. Um, I know. After after what? Like five years of me saying that I love you medium, we got to I love you a lot. I mean, uh, and that is, I don't have to get you a Christmas present. So there you go. <laughs> done. It's true. I think you're done Check forever. Really done forever. Yeah. How are you? How are you? Thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Today has been, I think like during, like December is such a wild time where you're always kind of, trying to wrap things up because you know there's going to be this amazing holiday at the end because we assume two weeks is going to go on forever and ever and ever <laughs> so we take on this amount of work that is like really a month's work and try to do it in two weeks when mm -hmm. uh it's darker uh it's colder <laughs> so yes. that is just generally my energy like feeling really hectic a little bit a little bit cold but also looking forward to the holidays I guess yeah I really don't understand why we didn't like adopt the bear hibernation thing um, because I don't know, every instinct in my mind this morning and every morning for the past few days, it's been so dark. And I just, I just think like, and no, no, we, we, we don't do this. We, we do not get up and greet the day. 
we uh, burrow in to covers and stay cozy. Like that just makes sense. I know. Humans mm-hmm. just learn from bears. Honestly, Seriously. humans. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, speaking of cold things, I want to get into thing number one, um, because despite it being freezing, you managed to pull off this amazing public art piece, installation, series yeah. of things. Uh, what would you call it? So display, like, do you want to tell us a little bit about display and I would love to. I think you described it perfectly. It's the kind of thing that it's multimedia. So yeah, public art, it involves like visual arts and narration and music and things uh, all wrapped up in a 10 minute long piece that was projected onto exterior building walls throughout the city. And um, the piece itself was uh, featured the work of over 50 disabled creatives and centered on the question, how do you want to be seen? Um, And specifically as a disabled person at a time with COVID when, uh, you know, a lot of people were feeling very invisible in the conversations around COVID and the protocols, what does it mean to be visible, to take up space? What do you want to project back out into the world? So how do you want to be seen, Ophira? Well, see, this is the thing. I put together the whole project. Um, You know, I I curated it, asked over 50 people this question, got like all sorts of beautiful answers. And then on opening night, I was being interviewed and the interviewer asked me, um, so how, how do you want to be seen? And I just... I didn't even think about it, (laughs) like this whole project. uh, It didn't even cross my mind. I think I said something uh, pretty rough. I was like, uh, as a uh, person um, who's (laughs) like, likes cheese, like, I don't (laughs) don't know, Um, which is accurate. I mean, I am a person and I do like cheese. Um, I like other things too. I think that my answer is maybe uh, I want to be seen as someone who who is capable of uh of change I think oh that's such a lovely answer oh I was (laughs) good good job dear CBC (laughs) (laughs) just cut this clip and put that in that's great um but that's so funny though like because we talk about this a lot so we talk every day everyone we're close friends in case that hasn't been clear yet um (laughs) spoilers spoilers but as like a curator or as a as a producer which both you and I we produce a lot of things you're you're the you think of of yourself last and it's just so funny I feel like we both get into this trap of producing work because we want to create work and the spaces that we want to create, that we, the spaces available to us aren't quite the spaces, aren't the best. Honestly, I'm just going to go out and say it. Like, there's just something yeah. about them that is not, it's not the best space for me to create work. So I'm going to create my own. But then you get into that and you're just in on production mode and you're creating this beautiful space that is like your ideal, but you actually don't get to partake in that. Yes. It's like frustrating and we'll talk about that we'll talk about this a little more because we were on different sides of this project so thing number two we'll talk about uh the project that i think our first project that we ever worked on together which is a uh, comedy sketch show about a scary place uh generally hospital right and you are the producer and this was the first project in my entire life where i got to hop on just as an artist so tell me a little bit about, tell me a little bit about that. And I will tell you what my perspective was because it was yeah, awesome. I, mean, <laughs> I want to know more about yours for sure. Um, I think that that was my first, it wasn't my first time producing, but it was my first time, it was my first time producing a French show. So it was definitely, which I think is a specific experience. Um mm-hmm you know, working within a festival format and adjusting to both trying to create a space the way you want it to be created, but also existing within a very, you know, there's existing schedules, there's, um, you know, you're, you're part of a whole as well within a festival. 
Um, I was lucky I, I wasn't producing alone. It was uh, me and Grace, Grace Smith, um, who definitely encouraged me to, to sort of take the leap on this project. I don't know that I would have um, felt comfortable enough to do it without her. Um, but it was super interesting because in so many ways, it was my dream show, um, a show that I hadn't thought anyone else would be interested in being a part of. Um, it was a sketch show about a hospital that we sung a bunch in. Like, truly, <laughs> at the time, I just felt like, oh, that's too decadent. Like, that's that's what I want to do, but nobody else is going to want to do that. No one else is going to want to see that. Um, and so it felt so exciting to have people be excited about the idea and want to come on board the team, uh, which was like a huge boost off the top. And then it slowly sunk in just how much work producing was, uh, especially because I really wanted to think through accessibility in a way that the festival hadn't really done before. So there was a lot of extra, you know, there's the standard production package uh, that, that you'd get within a festival. And then I was trying to bring new things in and have conversations with the team and see what was possible. And yeah, it turned into a much bigger endeavor than I thought. I learned a lot. Um, I was lucky that like the team was amazing. Um, and it was, we were sort of, we were all fairly new to the space and the audience was amazingly receptive by the time we got to the performance itself. And so there definitely was an element of magic. Um, but I was also fully exhausted throughout the creation and the performance of it. Yeah. And shout out to Grace and shout out to Sabrina uh, and Devin as well, who who were part, who rounded out that amazing team. Um, my experience of that was like, you had asked me on just, just to be an artist. And I was, uh, I was blown away at how much fun a place could be if you when you weren't when you weren't on the hook really for and and it's still even then like that was what 2018 that yeah. it was still it's still rare it's still rare for me uh oftentimes yeah like I think once you also get spoiled I think like once you learn how to create your space and once you know like you have a process that you prefer it's just easier for you to make your own projects, which is like display was like going back to display a little bit, which display is quite a unique project. And, you know, like how amazing would it be for someone to to invite me to do a project like that? Um, but at the same time, you know, some of the projects in my head are, are in my head. I'm not I did do display. Yeah. You did display. I kind of mix the things up. But um, right. So yeah. I don't no, know. For sure. Yeah. Love your, I guess the moral of the story is love your producers <laughs> and don't be, <laughs> love your producers. They're artists too. Yeah. Also find your producers. I think like finds because I, I think for me, like a big problem is I just have very serious trust issues um, for good reason, I would think, but in order to be able to feel like an artist and be able to feel comfortable in a space, I need that space to, to have a certain amount of framework to it, a certain amount of, for me, flexibility um, and, you know, nice feelings overall. I think that's, that's a fair thing to want in a creative space. Um, and so it means that it becomes really important who's on your team. Yeah. Yeah, and I, we've worked, like, we've worked together on multiple things since. Um, and you, you know, like, in very, with, in various degrees, I've worked with different members of that team. So, so yeah, that, I actually, like, it's funny. Um, no, it's not funny. What am I saying? But, like, so the story starts here now. <laughs> um, I learned a lot about producing by being a part of Generally Hospital. I don't think I could have ever imagined producing any show. Um, but when I saw Generally Hospital, and obviously I, I appreciate and recognize uh, all of the hard work, and maybe I actually probably wasn't, I think at the time was not aware really of 
how hard it really is. Um, but that show really empowered me because you were so good. You and Grace were so good about being transparent about the process, which is really rare, I'm finding. Um, because there's something about like keeping it as like smoke and mirrors that that kind of disempowers artists from I think like when you hide the process from someone kind of disempowers folks from advocating for themselves and learning as well. So because you were so clear about the process, I learned a lot and have since produced shows. I don't think I produced shows before Generally Hospital. Interesting. I feel Actually, like you must have done a couple. No. I mean, I was a part I was a part of a collective, sure, but I was not the producer of that show. You know, so there you go. We may like it may have been like a newbie, like newbie. <laughs> may have been- green team and it's funny because people this is what the funny part I remember when we uh put out the posters and stuff they're like oh who is this like this random random collect sketch collective that none of us have ever heard of like all of the famous comedy people in our community were like oh they're not they're not of the inner circle and then we sold out because because real people judged it (laughs) (laughs) Real people judge it and not gatekeepers and cliques. And I'm going to say that here and now. So <laughs> peace, everyone. Um, but yeah, we have produced other things since. I'm not bitter. Anyway, so we have produced other things since. Um, uh, and so thing number three is literally titanium. And I want to talk about literally titanium because, uh, you know, that was a really cool project. Uh, and, and that's sort of like, well, not the birth, but where Crypt the Script kind of uh, came about. You want to tell us about Crypt the Script? Well, I would love to, but first I have to mention that Alia produced Literally Titanium, which was incredible um, and gave me the opportunity. I was on the production team too, but it definitely um, gave me more of a chance to to sit in the art part of it, um, which was just a very lovely, wonderful thing. That's very generous, but you were still very active production team member. <laughs> I mean, for sure, for sure, for sure. Go on, but go on. Wax poetic about me. <laughs> Forever and ever and ever. Um, yeah, I mean, I tr- I couldn't have done it alone. Uh, I think that's that's the big takeaway, and I thought I could uh, at the beginning, and uh, most certainly could not have. So I was very lucky. Um, to have you and Sabrina and everyone on the on the team making it happen. Um, we kind of had this idea of a lot of previous productions and even generally hospital to a certain extent. We created the show um, and the show involves a lot of conversations about disability and there were thoughts about accessibility throughout, but we kind of at the end of the process, once the show was written, thought through um, making a relaxed version of the show for for sort of a, a different sensory experience, incorporating ASL. And for literally Titanium, after that experience, um, I started thinking about what would it mean to have a lot of these elements as part of the art? Because I think in Generally Hospital, we discovered that like when we changed our transitions from sketches to be a bit more relaxed, it opened up some like cool new feelings in the show. It changed the mood. Um, when we had shadowing interpretation, it also changed that performance in a really cool, fun way. Um, and so with that in mind, I really wanted to, to see what more was possible if the start of the show was grounded, you know, the initial creation was grounded in this idea of accessibility and access as part of the art itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one reason. The other reason is that I had had brain surgery right before, uh, the show was accepted into a festival and didn't know how on earth I was going to be able to pull it off and perform yeah. for that long when at the time of getting accepted, I was, um, barely able to like be awake and coherent for half an hour. And the show was a whole hour, um, <laughs> for multiple nights in a row. Yeah. So we had a lot of conversations about like, what does it mean 
to crip the scripts? What does it mean to kind of center disability in this really, um, you know, not as an add-on, not as a negative, as a as a creative possibility from the beginning of our process and folding that through the writing of the show, the content of the show, the production team, the marketing and outreach, and ultimately the final piece and audience experience. Um, and I would say we learned quite a lot through that mm -hmm. process. It was really, really, uh, for me, like a really important experience, a really, um, a really great experience in a lot of ways. And yeah, it started this idea of Crypt the Script that's sort of been percolating through other spaces um, and growing, thinking through like what what does it mean to do that and what kind of arts and and practice can grow out of it? Yeah, I honestly that that show for me was very formative. Um there are things, well, first of all, I could, you know, um, of course we talk all the time, but it's always just so amazing how much you don't see unless you're in someone's shoes, right? Like, and um, and how different and how different it is, how most people only when they talk about accessibility, it's always from the audience perspective and almost never the artist. Like they don't, they just assume. They just assume <laughs> that you're not going to be on stage. Yeah. Right. Um, um, and the other thing about that uh, experience, and I'm going to bring up like kind of a thorn on my side, if that's okay. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm a thorn. Like how people appreciate the work that goes into making something like that possible. Um, reviews. Yep. <laughs> okay. So without really getting into the nitty gritty of it, like, even though this, this was a solo show and like most, and most people assume solo shows are probably some like that. This is a generalization, but generally it's easier to have a solo show than it is to have like a five person show generally with some exception this being an exception, <laughs> right? Um, and it was like an amazing work, which A, me, I work as a, I work at a consultancy now that have, that has used that show as a precedent example of like best practice in terms of delivering relaxed performances, uh, creating accessible spaces for performers and for audiences, uh, for creating tools. So basically this was a precedent setting show, but while it was happening, there was not like not as much support. We could not get a grant. We weren't given a grant. So we had to fundraise that ourselves. Um, it was, badly reviewed by one very influential person because it did not fit his expectation of what a cabaret should be and completely erasing all of the Im other important work uh, that this show achieved. And then for all of these big institutions to learn from that show and not provide any support or acknowledgement still. That is systemic oppression, everyone. I am so infuriated by this because this show was in 2019. So, so all of that work happened in 2019 and 2021 weren't now. And I still hear about how groundbreaking <laughs> someone's like, oh my gosh, they did a relaxed performance. And they and then I see their visual guide, which is like what uh do you have a quick definition of what a visual guide is? Yeah, basically a document that gives you a sense of what to expect from the show, often grounded in in images and just lets you know if it's a physical location, what you're gonna expect when you get to the space and what kind of elements are gonna be in the show. If it's virtual, often includes uh some sort of like screenshots of these are the different screens you're gonna see, and this is uh, what you can expect from the contents as well. Yeah. So, I mean, so I see visual guides that are literally template. 
template from the show, right? And this is not at all, like, I just want to make it very clear, like, working with Fringe was great. Obviously, you know, doing anything that's kind of, I'm going to say pioneering, <laughs> doing, like, is is challenging. And I, I do think that, you know, like, that relationship as it's progressed, like, it's, you know, the way they talk about accessibility is, like, definitely improved. But a lot of institutions are just sort of... <laughs> It's just this practice of like making sure that the risk is is the risk of doing anything new when it comes to like racial justice, disability justice, lies solely on like the artists and the folks who have no choice. And then you go pan them and then and make their lives very difficult only to take the things that they learn and use it for your institutions and you get your two hundred fifty thousand dollar, two million dollar grant. So um Burn the institutions. Yeah, I, I guess, guess. That's a reasonable response for sure. I only get a very small lighter. <laughs> Did I get too angry? This is how I feel, everyone. <laughs> no, like, <laughs> very fair. And like, yeah, you know, it's, it, I think people also discount the vulnerability involved in that too. Um, which, yeah, I think that sometimes people take a, a step back and, and see these things in terms of, um, oh, well, like progress was still made. People learned that was the goal of the show or at least one of them. Like, amazing. It was, uh, it was successful. And I think that the show was very successful for many reasons, um, but that wasn't necessarily one of them to me. I think that the, the feeling that I was left with from institutions was, was just really hurt. Um, it was really hurt and then really hard to go out night after night and perform a super vulnerable solo yeah. show on stage feeling that. Um, I think that the success happened within our work as a team and the success yeah. happened within the communication with the audience, which was incredible. Like the audience overall who came to the show often like hung back to chat afterwards, filled out cards and like really communicated um, in such meaningful, wonderful ways. So there were there were great things, but it certainly wasn't wasn't from institutions. Yeah, and 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 to clarify, like the show to me was successful. Period. And it was really difficult for me to witness something that was like clearly connecting with folks. Clearly, you know, you got a standing ovation every night. You had people come up to you and and such beautiful, beautiful stories. We did a panel every night and it was great. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I learned a lot. I think I think uh, the community learned a lot, but felt very gaslit by the outside. Yeah. And I it, just got wondering why no one was saying anything. Like it felt very. Yeah. yeah. It very felt bad. <laughs> very bad because it's like, this is a very ableist, rude, inappropriate, not constructive thing to say, which a impacted sales. <laughs> Never mind that, like putting together all of that, those resources cost more money, period. And so it just felt a little bit like pushing something up a boulder because we want to, but then like that person needlessly, needlessly like making sure that there's like a pile more, like, you know, yeah. like Which as if that, the boulder back down, like for what reason, <laughs> for yeah. what reason? I mean, I'm already um, disabled. I don't need an extra boulder <laughs> falling on me. <laughs> and I have no upper body strength. Yeah, like what? <laughs> we are not the people. To Don't do that. On. No, you know. So yeah, but I like. I am so proud. That is one of the most. I'm so proud of that show. I hope we put it up again. Um, yeah, but like actually, <laughs> thing number four, and we're gonna talk about it a little bit more is exhaustion. We talk about exhaustion all the time, and we're always making fun <laughs> of each other because. Uh, at the end of most conversations, we're like, okay, Alia, like we're gonna, we're gonna do self-care. <laughs> and then I'm like, Ophira, you're not going to take on any other projects and we're going to just rest. Mm -hmm. And then the next phone call, it's 
usually like, hey, guess what I just did? What? <laughs> I took on another project. <laughs> and like, let's be real. It's never I took on another project. It's I took on two projects. <laughs> Whoops. What are we doing? Why do we do this? Capitalism? Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> what is this capitalism of which you speak? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, I deliver workshops on like crypt the script, finding different ways of doing things, like, you know, really prioritizing your body and your needs and the ways of working that actually feed you and work for you. Um, and I can't get myself free from the productivity mindset, even mm -hmm. though I know that it's like rooted in such harmful concepts and specifically ableism. Um, and yet here I am, somebody says, here's an opportunity. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Yes, please. 1000%. Like here I am. Uh, yeah, I'll just uh, rearrange my life for this. No problem. Thank you so much for thinking of me. Yep. Yeah, I don't know why. It's just like in me. I know intellectually that capitalism, bad. <laughs> <laughs> that we're all working ourselves to exhaustion. But I can't help the feeling that I'm in this race. And the thing that I always have, like now that I'm in my and have a world of wisdom. <laughs> uh, Tell me more. This is this is this is just the thought that I keep. Like I am so tired. A because I need to have multiple jobs to pay the rent and live mm -hmm. the life that I want to live, and and I need to be able to produce my own shows so that I'm not bound to institutional like oppression and honestly mediocrity. Well, yeah. they're not doing anything innovative, right? So, um, wow, I got real. What was I saying? <laughs> but anyway, uh, capitalism bad. Capitalism bad. Like, yeah. but I always feel this like if I don't work and don't put myself out there, they're gonna toss me aside. Yep. And recently. I, so I had, we, we've talked about this. So I had, I developed this, a case of vertigo, like extreme vertigo, which was shocking, which basically had me nauseous and dizzy for three weeks straight. I literally thought I was going to die the first week because I could not walk. And like the really scary thing, and this probably changed a lot of things for me. The really scary thing was realizing that number one, I couldn't work. And therefore, and, and this fear that if I, if I couldn't work because I couldn't look at screens, so no emails, and as a performer, like the world was spinning. <laughs> the world was spinning. Like, you, what, do you, what do you do, right? Um, and it's funny because we've, we, we talk about accessibility a lot and, 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 and requiring accommodations and, you know, uh, but there was this moment where I was like, I'm, I'm done <laughs> because I can't be productive. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when I realized nothing matters. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Queen was right. We should get our life lessons from Bohemian Rhapsody. Well, yes. Yes. Freddie Mercury, you were correct. You're nothing real. really matters. Me working myself to the bone in the past. And maybe also my lack of savings account. You know what? I'll I'll take accountability for that. But also, come on, welfare. Like, like we need to have a better like protection, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. not welfare. What am I talking about? It's uh, universal basic income. Thank you, universal basic income. But I literally, <laughs> there was a moment I was like, I'm. I did not. I was not. I'm not prepared for this. I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and that was scary. I was like, damn. Yeah. I think people have this idea that, like, people are, like, fully abled 
And then there are some people who are disabled and like, oh yeah, that's probably hard, but like they're used to it and and they know and uh, you know, we can just ask them their as- access needs and we can just work that in and, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And like, there's no, there's no acknowledgement for the fact that bodies are weird. They do weird mm-hmm. things. Um, I, my, my particular disability, I've technically had my whole life, um, but it didn't really affect me until I was much older and I didn't know about it. So all of a sudden I was in my first year of university and I, one day, extreme head pain, couldn't read, couldn't lift my hands to wash my hair, couldn't speak properly, like just everything went and I was in the middle of classes and there were there were no recourses um, in order to access student services. You have to have been experiencing symptoms for up to three months. Well, if I was like this for three months, I guess I was out of school. Um, I had no coping strategies because this was brand new to me. Um, I didn't know if it was temporary or if it was long term. I assumed it was temporary, but I had no idea. Um, and thought I was dying in a similar situation and just had absolutely no concept that that could happen to someone. And my only thought at that point was like, I have to find a way to get through school. Like I can't, I can't stop studying because if I can't work towards school, then that's going to delay me a year. And then my scholarship's going to run out and then I won't have enough money to be here. And then, you know, what am I, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Um, and eventually pushed myself to uh, getting a lot of injuries that made my disability quite a bit worse than maybe uh, it might have ended up because I was just trying so hard to hold on to the things I thought I was supposed to do, like productivity. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's like an alarmingly common experience and so, so unfortunate. Yeah. It, it's, it was really, you know, I don't know. I'm still, I'm still processing that. Like just not knowing if I could make rent Yeah, and, and that will do things to you. And the beautiful thing about that is like, it puts a lot of things in perspective, which is like kind of like a gross, like, well, put things in perspective. <laughs> right. But Honestly, we talk about mutual aid and interdependency a lot. And that is the only reason I I survived that and felt like towards the end, like I could I could move forward. So I was I'm really lucky and I'm a really privileged person that A, I have a support network who like because this happened when I was traveling, Niagara Falls, and I happen to have a group of people who care about me and have their resources to be able to like, I couldn't take the train back. (laughs) So they had to drive me. I could do that. Um, They fed me. They had, they had relatives who were doctors and nurses who, who looked, who looked out for me. And then my boss, who is this amazing person who, who, even though (laughs) she's my employer also kind of works outside of capitalism and, way she's like you are taking paid leave and she didn't have most most companies I worked for in the past would just be like wouldn't be that understanding you know and if I you know and then and I and yeah it's just it's that community it's like that collective that you build around yourself and yeah interdependency my friends so what is interdependency (laughs) Oh my goodness, my favorite word. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's literally that. The idea that, you know, I, we value independence so much as a society. Um, and it comes up a lot in disability too, like finding ways to be independent, um, which ultimately is just not really a thing. No, no humans fully independent. Um, if I smashed my laptop, uh, I definitely could not put, put it back together. Um, no clue. Um, I don't grow my own food. I don't make my own clothes. And for me, beyond that, um, you know, I, I have a number of things that I, I rely on people for. I'm not very good at lifting things. 
Um, but that's cool. Other people are. And as opposed to framing things as fully independent or completely dependent, which fun facts, that's how a lot of government programs define disabled folks is our dependence. It takes the idea of an interdependent way of being where we all need things and we all um, have things that we have to offer and not in a transactional way not in a like, I do this for you, so you do that for me, but in a like, here are some things I can put out into the world here are some things other people can, and together we can collectively form a web that that holds all of us and that has space for us. Um, I have to shout out, uh, speaking of mutual aid and interdependence, at uh, that time when I had uh, three days where I could not sit up in bed at all, and the Generally Hospital team, including Alia, basically kept me. I mean, basically alive. You brought me, there was, you set up a cooler beside my bed and brought me food and uh, enabled me to spend multiple days fully horizontal, um, which is impossible to do by yourself. Um, that was, that's pretty great. Yeah. You know what? Sketch collectives, when you get them right, they, they're pretty great. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they're, they're, they're pretty great. And like, there is a lot of power in like those small collectives. I think, you know, um, sketch troops have a lot of history of just like drama, <laughs> drama, but yeah, they are, they become family and communities. And, and it's funny too, because um, even though we've worked together in the past, I think the thing that I value the most about our friendship is a, um, <laughs> I can ask you to, I'm on my podcast and it will be awesome and great. But also that uh, like we could just talk to each other. Like I think we're trying our very best to not work with each other anymore and just be friends. And there's like, there is a an important value to that because that is a source of resilience. So that is like interdependence for me, like a big source of it. And a lot of my comedy friends that I've, you know, maybe we've met through working together are now just my comedy friends that I can nerd about comedy with. Yeah. And laugh. Laughter is nice. I like laughter overall. Laughter is amazing. That's why we're in this, which is why it's like all of this other stuff is like, why do we have to get through all this stuff first? Which is, we try to not talk about this in the podcast. Here we go. We have no, 10 minutes no. left, but like, <laughs> Just to get to like, hey, what's your favorite sketch on Monty Python? Um, <laughs> it's just nice to be in a collective where you know that that other person already knows like the complexities of life without, you know, and so that when you talk about comedy, you're not gonna have to worry about them saying something really shitty or upsetting. And yeah. when, if that happens, you've invested enough in that relationship to be like, you said something shitty based on our relationship, I know that, you know, you're not a dangerous person. Um, so I'm going to tell you. And if you're upset about it, sit by yourself, but then otherwise I'll call you tomorrow. Yeah. Um, yeah, but we can just go in and be like, man, what's that show that we, we hate right now? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> or like, for example, we could talk about like a live show and be like, oh my gosh, like, just this comedic piece as opposed to, well, we still do this. We're like, ah, uh, they still did some, a bunch of shitty things, which is a lot of shows are still doing shitty things. Why are you doing shitty things? It's 2021. Um, but we can get into it without having to get through all of that. Even though this podcast is a complete example of the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I swear. I swear. We talk, we talk about TV a lot. We, that's, that's the thing we talk about. All right. Well, thing number five, let's talk about TV, funny TV. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. Expands. No, you're the guest. Oh, <laughs> like, no. Well, I guess I should prompt you. Um, be yeah. I mean, both of us are trying to do TV things right now. And uh, TV comedy is really funny. Um, because honestly, as much as we complain about theater, TV, you're behind, my friends. <laughs> yeah. Like, what? You have all of the money. $5 also, billion dollars in 
industry in Toronto and you go on a set or watch a show or read a script, it's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Okay. But also theater has like actual constraints of timeline of like liveness. Uh, TV, you do the work before it airs. So why can't things also be constructed in a way that um, feel a little bit better for everyone? You have all the money and all the time. Yeah, it's true. You know, (laughs) (laughs) maybe spend a little less money on your sound effects and spend a little more budget on being less shitty. Mm, this industry that we're trying to break through (laughs) please like us (laughs) hey you know i already burnt all my bridges in the theater industry i've got a whole new industry (laughs) to burn like queen of burning bridges um whatever nothing matters right (laughs) anyone can see it um you know nothing really anyway tv what tv do we like (laughs) (laughs) i don't know you just gave me your Disney Plus password, so I'm very excited to tell <laughs> <laughs> Well, tell us about, can you talk about your TV project? Ooh, right. that's a good question. Um, not really. And that makes it sound like it's more real than it currently is. Oh, it's very real. It's very real. Um, but I can, I can say in general terms, like I... I'm working in general on just writing TV that that isn't ableist and is also funny, um, which sounds like, you know, yeah, that sounds like it should be pretty easy. And in a lot of ways it is. Um, but so many conventions of storytelling, specifically within TV around disability, tie into ableist tropes that it's been quite neat to get to write about disability without it being some form of like inspirational overcoming narrative um, and just letting people be and be silly and be human and be real um, has just been a lot of fun. You know, one of my favorite things about uh, that make me laugh a lot is I remember you brought up the Writers Guild report Mm-hmm. which has literally like 0% of the writers in writer's room are disabled or identified. 0.3. 0.3%, okay. Be fair to this 0.3. And of the writers in writer's room, uh, everyone is like very much an intro level. But again, 0.3 in the entirety of the Canadian uh, TV landscape. Okay, and then the CFC, shout out to the CFC. I'm trying to get in one of your programs, just kidding. Um, so shout out to the, C- the CFC, one of their like emerging programs that are focused purely to bring in disabled writers, required disabled writers to have three to five credits of fully <laughs> written shows. As, like, what? <laughs> Shout out also that when I pointed this out, y'all ignored me. So. Yeah, it's very rude. I don't know. People like to ignore me. Also, shout out to a festival that put like a. Never mind. I'm not going to say anything. Forget it. (laughs) No, it's fine. (laughs) Everyone's just going to have to guess. Just guess. Guess. (laughs) Guess. It's in a very flat area. Anyway, go on. So, um, <laughs> so that's a yeah. That's the stuff that's making me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very ironic when people want credits after acknowledging that literally no one has those credits, and that's the reason why programs like this are potentially important. Um, yeah, irony. Yeah. I know. I mean whatever nothing, matters. <laughs> oh, nothing really matters yeah do what you want <laughs> build, <laughs> build your own communes like that's really what we're trying to say that's socialism <laughs> yeah as long as it has a pool I really I really want to go swimming I mean we're building a whole village and yes. like the middle part is a pool mm-hmm. and um yeah. That also sometimes doubles as a stage depending on uh, depending on the mood. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So in the past, in the in the past, uh I've done like a to end this 
to end this podcast, I do a lightning round. Okay. But maybe let's just like, (laughs) (laughs) there you go, lightning round. But let's just like, you know, let's just build the the most perfect village in our brains. (laughs) Through lightning? Yeah, but five things. Okay. Okay. So five things that are like your perfect, like out of this, out of society, (laughs) out of the (laughs) matrix village. Build with. Build with. Shout out to Shannon LaHaye, folks, one of the most talented producers out there. Hire her. Anyway, um, so yes, okay, go. Number one. Well, swimming pool. That was, was of course, we already have number one. So therefore, number number two. Oh, wait, is this all me? It's all you. We were jointly building interdependence, mutual aid. Okay, fine. But we also said stage, obviously, because we're Mm, live performers. Of course. (laughs) Number one swimming. Number two, (laughs) stage. Is that, like, what about that stage? That stage is going to be? Accessible. It's going to be accessible. Do you remember when a certain festival built a a temporary (laughs) stage and that was also not accessible? (laughs) Like, you built it. (laughs) You built it. (laughs) <laughs> what remember when i just brought my wheelchair beside that stage and pretended that i was on it but i was actually beside it oh everyone felt the tension it's like <laughs> seared in my brain <laughs> number moment. three what else do you want in this like perfect village i mean okay i understand that we've been talking about like real constructible things but i just want to take a moment to make sure that we have like copious amounts of brie on oh, the thank site. goodness i'm <laughs> so glad you remembered that <laughs> <laughs> yeah brie brie the original cheesecake everybody <laughs> because it's like it looks anyway, it looks you know, you like can... a cake <laughs> it looks like a cheese mm-hmm yeah, no, yes. accurate, very accurate. Um, hmm. Number four. I mean, I would love to have like a farm. I think a farm is nice. Yeah. Oh, that's so lovely. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then number five, a magical genie. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. So no, obviously. Yeah. We will never want for anything. Yeah. I was going to say, like, some form of transportation or, like, beds or, you know, something like that. But I think that all of that would be covered. By the uh, genie. This is, of course. This is yeah. literally that, like, you get three wishes. First wish. Yes. <laughs> Unlimited <laughs> wishes. Yes, the genie can do all the rest, Shannon. Yeah. <laughs> so that is, isn't that such a perfect, perfect world? Only yeah. only needed five things, so it's <laughs> true. And honestly, we could probably do it with one. Honestly, folks, hey, an election, an election's coming up, and if um, if a genie is not on the platform of any of those candidates, I will just be critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, obviously nothing matters, so I won't be too invested, but I oh, will be. Um, yeah, yeah, vote for genie. Of course, Jeannie. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, what a perfect, perfect podcast. (laughs) Thank thank you so much, Ophira, for joining us for a particularly spicy five things episode at Bad Dog Comedy TV. Um, Oh, yeah. What's next, Ophira? What are you working on next? Oh, I mean, I'm trying to have a vacation. So that's like my main goal and priority. Right. That's it. Ophira is having a vacation. We're very, very, very invested in rest. It's been a while. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Don't work on any more things. So uh, don't check out of it. Don't check out anything because Ophira is not doing anything for the next month. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I don't know if I'll be that successful. Just kidding. Just kidding. Check out Ophira's stuff at ophira.ca best website ever also on <laughs> ig at ophira.c and twitter at ophira underscore c but ophira is never on twitter so maybe just stick with ig um i mean you can if you want to see a blank page um that's true that might be very exciting calming that's mm, for sure that's our goal yeah rest. <laughs> <You love rest. laughs> and if you haven't yet you know like if you know if you haven't yet and you know you happen to be resting 
and you want to watch more stuff, check out cool the cool programming Bad Dog has coming your way. So subscribe to this channel. Um, and if you'd like to support the show, consider donating to www.baddogtheater.com slash five things. Um, Bad Dog Comedy Theater, by the way, is one of the few institutions that are doing things right. And uh, I'm going to say that without any bias. <laughs> okay, so a big shout out to Shannon LaHaye, our tech, and thank you so much for joining us. I've been Alia Saniza Rasul, and in the words of my people, ingat, which means take care and rest. Have a great night. Bye, everyone. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. Sonar! With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.